Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and today, reading from my commentary on the book of Revelation. We're talking about the seven bowls of judgment. We're coming closer to the end of all things here. Turn to chapter 16. Please get a Bible out. I won't be reading all the texts, so I want you to be there at the text yourself in your Bible to be sure that I'm saying what the Bible says. The seven bowls. Chapter 16, we actually begin with verse 2. We covered verse 1 last time. All who have received the Antichrist mark receive also a mark from heaven, a foul, loathsome sore. Or is this the outcome of the original mark of the beast? Does this morally poisonous identification with Antichrist prove to be contaminating to the body also? Is the chip, as it were, a a technological carcinogen? The believers are, of course, exempt from this judgment since they have not been appointed to wrath. And if we're on the right trail about the sore here, it's obvious why the believers don't manifest any health problems. The second bowl, verse 3, all sea creatures die. Now, whether this is a magnification of the second trumpet, a separate but similar judgment, or an altogether different phenomenon simply is not explained. All we know is we have jumped from 33% to 100% of sea creatures, dead, all dead. Something from the heavens had dropped onto earth to cause the one-third to be killed. What could possibly destroy the other two-thirds? We have no idea, unless it's just an ongoing poisoning. In other words, at first, one-third immediately dead, and then the rest of them slowly dying. We don't know. The third bowl is verse 4. Rivers are now fully contaminated. They become blood in vengeance for the blood of holy men that has been shed. Now, I understand the significance of water of life in a spiritual sense. We taste of it regularly in the Lord. But I'm equally convinced of the literalness of Revelation 22, 1 and 2, connected with Old Testament prophecies like Ezekiel's that speak of a healing water that shall fill the earth, the new earth that God creates out of the horrors of the old. The usable water supply, not overly abundant in many areas of the world as I write this, will one day become virtually nil. This, the pride of the blue planet, will be a knockout punch to civilization. And for a literal earth to continue on into the millennium, literally healed waters must be available. And that's what Revelation is talking about in 22. Then there's a praise break, verses 5 through 7. It's always time to praise the Lord in this book, or all the time. Oh, men will be cursing God by now, blaming and hating the people of God who remain. Yes, they will still be here. But in heaven all is still well and proper. God is just in all he does. He owes nothing to anyone but judgment. Those who did not want his mercy will now receive that judgment. Yes, the world shed the blood of your precious people. Let them drink blood. It is proper. It is good. The spirit of David in the Psalms has returned for this hour. God's enemies, who continue to be God's enemies, deserve what they shall receive. (coughs) Let us not sympathize with their evil. Their hearts were corrupt. They wanted nothing of God in those hearts, and God now acknowledges their desires. The fourth bowl, verses 8 and 9, the earth's people are scorched now by the sun. 
If trumpet four is an eclipse, what can we say about bowl four, a supernova? Does the sun here finally give out altogether, explode? Is the result of that burst of heat the scorching of mankind? How do believers endure this? Are they in a portion of the world that is not immediately facing the sun when it happens? The order of events given by Jesus regarding the sun in Matthew 24. First, tribulation on earth. Second, the darkening of the sun. We've seen that here in Revelation too. And resultant inability of the moon to give its light. All of that is here in Revelation also. And three, then the Son of Man comes. So here we are very close to Jesus returning in this bold judgment. Notice the Pharaoh-like reaction of men to the plagues. The light of the sun has gone out, but they do not repent. How cold and hard are men. Notice in 9.6, during the locust plague, the desire is to die, not to repent. And in 9.20, when one-third of the world has been annihilated, people are still continuing in idolatry, murder, immorality. It seems that only the preaching of the two prophets and a killer earthquake have any effect on this hardness. Even with the next plague, the gradual cooling, if not freezing, of the earth, still no signs of tears. The fifth bowl, verses 10 and 11. The fifth bowl is the companion to the fourth. Damage to the sun is now translated into darkness and extreme cold, causing the pain, it would seem, of frostbite as people gnaw their tongues, trying to keep warm, still smarting from the scorch wounds of the supernova. All of the beast's kingdom is in darkness. Note how believers are spared many portions of the plagues, as were the Israelites in Canaan. This is another indication that God's people are not appointed to wrath, and him leaving his people here on the planet during these years is not an indication that he's angry with them. He is protecting them. God can spare his people through the trouble as well as from it. But though we say this, we understand that the beast's kingdom is the entire world by now. Christians must be hiding in spirit-directed areas to escape the ravages of God's judgment on fallen man. You recall the Roman catacombs underneath the earth. Perhaps that is where God's people are now, someplace like that. The sixth bowl, chapter 16, still verses 12 to 16. The sixth bowl, there is a blending now of trumpet six and bowl six, We're almost in exactly the same era of history as all wind winds down to its final low. At the trumpet sound, the machinery of war begins. One third of mankind killed, but the war machine moves on. And Satan is not satisfied with world conquest, especially as he sees his dreaded enemy taking power over nature. He must have all power himself, and he summons the war mechanisms to a final theater in the Middle East. As at the sixth trumpet, you can look there, the river Euphrates is involved. The trumpeting was merely the releasing of the Euphrates angels so that the process could begin. Here's a closer look behind the scenes, reminiscent of 1 Kings 22, where the man of God prophesies that lying spirits will convince God's enemies to come to battle and be defeated. Here, what started with the trumpet is finalized. Euphrates is dry. The kings from the east may now go to Israel. And is it 200 million behind them marching? 
Or is it, as in 916, 200 million horsemen, their, quote, animals described, not as ordinary horses, but as modern implements of war? And oh yes, even in the darkness of the sixth seal, the sixth trumpet, and the sixth bowl, there is a church present. Jesus chooses this horrific moment in the narrative to speak to them and remind them to keep their garments clean during this evil reign. For even as in our day there is much sinning in the middle of much suffering, so it will be then. But also, as in our day, there is a remnant church listening for and hearing the voice of God. The evil spirits then lead the kings of earth to Armageddon. Is this a real place? The word is Har Megiddo, that is, the mountains of Megiddo. Megiddo itself means rendezvous. God indeed has a final meeting in mind, a last confrontation with the sons of men before Jesus comes, even as he comes. As to the town of Megiddo, it was one of the many conquered by Joshua and was originally a part of western Manasseh. This is one of those towns where the Israelites did not drive out the Canaanites. It was a stronghold to be prized by either side. By Deborah's day, the mountain stronghold oversaw a famous battle. Near the waters of Megiddo, General Barak routed the army of Sisera. We next hear of the town in connection with Solomon's administration over it and his fortification of it. King Ahaziah of Judah, a wicked man, is wounded in battle and flees to this city to die. Josiah of Judah, a good man in a wicked cause, is killed by Pharaoh here. And later, Zechariah refers to this Josiah incident and says there'll be a similar one of great mourning in Jerusalem. This is the only clue I found that links Megiddo with Jerusalem. I was searching for such a link since most of the prophecies of the end-time horrors center around Jerusalem, not Megiddo. Nevertheless, this Megiddo location, overlooking the valley of Jezreel, that is, the plain of Esdraelon, could well be the site of the Antichrist's last stand. It is today in what is known as the West Bank. Now, that's a derogatory term to Israel as it refers to Jordan's old borders, not Israel's, and could fit the description given in Daniel of the willful king's frantic movements before he is given to the flames. Now, news from the east, that's those 200 million, and from the north, perhaps Russia and company, shall trouble him. and Therefore, he shall go out. And I'm saying from Jerusalem, question mark. And he shall plant the tents of his palace, his portable throne, as in older days, between the seas. Now you've got three to choose from, and perhaps all of them. Between the Mediterranean, the Galilee, and the Dead Sea, he's going to plant his final place. And the between that and the glorious holy mountain, that's Sinai. You put all those places together, the convergence could well be Megiddo. Now notice in 1614 that they're all gathered at Armageddon, prepared for the final battle against the Lord. It's demonic spirits that tell them to come and fight against the approaching Jesus. The sixth bowl, just before the end, and his return is the drying of the Euphrates so that they can easily gather there. The seventh bowl is the battle itself. And so Armageddon is not just another world war. Armageddon is the final battle of that war. It's the end. 
Now the seventh bowl. With the seventh bowl, we once more come to the final portion of history. I believe it's important for us to see here the overlapping of terms that describe not only this last bowl, but the last seal and the last trumpet. Three times the Lord brings us to the end of all things so far. Now, this ending is the same event as a quick comparing of chapters 6, 11, and 16 will bear out. Let me do that for you. At the last seal of chapter 6, there's a great earthquake, a blackened sun, a blood-red moon, falling stars, a receding sky, the moving of mountains and islands and kings hiding in caves. At the last trumpet, in uh, chapter 11, again, there's an earthquake. And the kingdoms are Christ's. God's wrath has come. There are lightnings. There are noises. There's hail. And at the last bowl of chapter 16, right here, again, the earthquake, the darkness, the mountains and islands moved, a voice saying, it is done, the mention of the wrath of God, noises, thunderings, lightnings, hail. And as part of that end-time climax, just prior to Jesus' coming, we encounter the following. First, nature in chaos. As, the, as at the sixth seal and the seventh trumpet, there's a mighty storm, an unprecedented earthquake. Mountains are leveled. Hail falls. The heavens are decimated by, it seems, the explosion of our star, the sun. Yet men will not turn from their wickedness, and they continue their blasphemies. It is just, it is into just such chaos that Jesus said that he would come. Jesus here speaks of days of unprecedented tribulation. He says he will come just before all flesh is destroyed. As we read Revelation's description of the upheavals of nature, the sun gone, Skies unraveling, mountains flattening. How long indeed could the planet and its people survive without the special intervention of its creator? Jesus' promise to come for the sake of his chosen ones lets us know, again, that his own are being spared the ravages of judgment and will not be punished with the world. Just as it seems the world will go up in one last pitiful puff of smoke, he comes calls his own to himself, and begins the restoration process. And then there is hail in 1621. Before we move to the next event, a word about hail in Revelation. Isaiah 28.17 speaks of a time when hail will sweep away the lies of Israel, a time when the foundation stone will be laid, when justice will rule the earth. Other Old Testament prophecies speak of hail, and hail was a part of the plaguings of Egypt, mixed with fire. Pharaoh came running to repent, unlike the men of the final generation. Hail will be evident during the first trumpet's devastation of one-third of earth's vegetation. And then here at the very end, in company with earthquakes, lightnings, thunderings, and so on, at this seventh bowl is pointed out that the hail will be the weight of a talent, now, if Nelson's Bible dictionary is correct, this Hebrew measure of a talent is the amount of material that a man can carry. Yeah, we can hardly imagine how brutal this storm will be. And then number two, 
Uh, first, we've got nature in chaos, and then we've got Babylon falling. The fall of Babylon is first recorded in 14, you recall, 14.8, in a series of angelic announcements that includes the worldwide spread of the gospel and warnings not to worship the beast. But here in 16, the judgment of the city seems to be at the very end of all things, in connection with the final series of natural and military disasters signaling the return of Christ. The great city. The great city, it's called. There are two cities called great in Revelation. Jerusalem wears that title in chapter 11, but only there. In 11.2, the same old Jerusalem is called the holy city. On the other hand, Babylon, even as it is falling, is called that great city. This phrase is repeated in 14.8, and 18.16, and 18, and 19, and 18.21. We assume then that here in 1619, since great Babylon is identified later in the verse, that the great city at the beginning is Babylon. The the division of the city is evidently a result of the unequaled earthquake in 1618. But look, when the great city uh, meets its disastrous end, the cities of the nations fall also. Either the external judgments pounding away at the surface of the earth or some internal connection that Antichrist has devised to make the cities of earth one city are responsible. Whatever, Babylon is finally and fully given her cup of wrath. This introduction is followed in the following two chapters by close-ups of this incredible city. Chapter 17 is Babylon's description and chapter 18 her decimation related to John by two separate angels. Remember now, it's already happened. We're just looking backward to watch the video of it, to see it close up. Uh, One note about 1620. Here is a strange entry into the vision. One would think that John is now seeing the post-millennial entry into eternity. But in the next verse, he talks again about how hail is falling on men. MacArthur surmises that the hugeness of the earthquakes, the great shakings of this planet that he promised, will cause geographical changes of a phenomenal proportion. The earth is being made ready for its new manager. It must be in perfect order. Well, now we move on to chapter 17. Chapter 17, Babylon. Babylon's description, in fact. Scholars have speculated about the differences in chapters 17 and 18, theorizing that there must be two different Babylons being described, but careful analysis may not support that notion. There's too much that is similar. What is different about the careful description of the two chapters is intent, not geography. The intent of the first angel is to give a no-doubt identity of this woman who rides this beast. In doing so, the angel also gives some clear clues about the beast whom we first met in chapter 13. The intent of the second angel is to describe in detail the judgment of Babylon and the reaction of earth and heaven to that judgment. This horrendous but justified event takes place just before the return of Jesus. And with chapter 17, I believe it's safe to say that the book of Revelation is now in chronological order at last. With, with Babylon's fall comes the end of the tribulation. 
as it is somehow connected to the last battle of chapter 16 at Armageddon. All-out victory over evil is the order of the day. Jesus has returned. Now, where are the saints all of this time? I mean the saints that were on earth and the saints that have just come with Jesus. Are they somehow involved in the battle or seated off to the side watching their mighty Savior defeat the world's worst with the angels? I'm not sure the Bible tell us tells us this. First, though, the description of Babylon. I confess here that the identification of Babylon still contains mystery for me. Some see the entire book as mystery, but this mystery is labeled such. In 17.5, it's called a mystery. I spent from 1992 to 1996 researching and writing about Babylon, tracing her history from the infamous tower of Genesis 10 to those very chapters that we're at right now in Revelation. My conclusion was that there has always, nearly always been a Babylon, a holder of the satanic mysteries, a a promulgator of false teaching and man's religion. I further concluded that those mysteries and falsenesses were passed to the institution in Rome that still exists as a world power. Now, I hesitate to speak of the Roman church, for the people of God wear that title. Church must not be used glibly. The church is the called out of God. Yes, even associated with Rome are those who know Jesus Christ, but when we speak of Babylon, we're really speaking of the ongoing Roman Empire, the political machine that seized power by means of the church, added Babylon's teachings, wielded Babylon's sword, donned Babylon's garb. The 17th chapter identifies a city ruling over the kings of the earth and sitting on seven hills in John's day. Is there a question of her identity, at least the city? And yet even in the book I wrote, I had to honestly admit into into evidence a parallel series of facts which are equally viable. The prophecies concerning physical Babylon have yet to be fulfilled perfectly. The city whose remains are now in Iraq never died abruptly, as prophesied. It continued on and on. Even in Jesus' day, many Jews lived in Babylon. But the record is sure. Babylon is to be extinguished quickly, as prophesied yet again in the chapters before us here in Revelation. Let's proceed carefully through these two-plus chapters. Every detail counts. Notice just how much space is given to this mystery compared to all the others. Lest we become content with too general an explanation of this passage, we follow the text carefully and we listen to the wisdom given by no less than an angel of God. First, he invites John to come along and see the following person. Babylon is a woman. I'm in verse 1, 17, 1. In Scripture, the two best-known women, spiritually speaking, are Israel and Christ's own bride, the church. Well, the woman before us has long lost her virginity, is not married to God at all, but to everyone willing to pay her price. Her description reminds us of another woman in the prophets. Zechariah speaks of a woman sitting inside a basket, carried through the air and deposited in the land of Shinar, old Babylonia, where a house is to be built for her. And we say with Zechariah, this is wickedness. You can find that in Zechariah 5. 
She sits on many waters. Interpretation for this is clear from verse 15. The waters, it says, stands for all the people over whom she has spiritual authority. And then Babylon is a harlot. Verses 1 and 2, she has spiritual intercourse with the rulers of the world. She rises to power on her back, in bed with the powerful. Take away the power of men and she has nothing. She's not only a fornicator herself, but spreads her wine via the golden cup that she carries in verse 4. The cup of her fornication brings us back for the first time, but not the last in these chapters, to the prophets who saw Babylon before. Nothing has changed but location. Jeremiah 51.7 reminds us that Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. They did it then, they did it in John's day, and they are mad still. They are drunk with the wine of her falseness. Verse 3, now we're in the wilderness. Why is this woman, later called a city, seen first in a wilderness? I believe the tie-in here is to Zechariah's Shinar prophecy mentioned above. In this wilderness... John is for the first time seeing what the angel was describing. The woman is riding on an animal. Whoever the animal is, he is the one responsible for her power. And when he decides to throw her off, in verse 16, she's history. More about the woman. Her personal colors are purple and scarlet, the regal colors of Rome's powerful. She's unquestionably rich, and as is Rome, And she has the aforementioned cup in her hand. It is filled with things that God hates, poisonous errors of word and lifestyle and worship. On the forehead, verse 5, in her mind and soul is imprinted the title of Babylon. She alone is responsible for all earth's abominations. Those who preach another gospel, another God, another book, another way of salvation shall bear the blame for all eternity for earth's woes. God created an earth that was pleasant and manageable by man. It's out of control now because from the beginning man wanted to go his own way. Babylon's religion is based on this will of man in direct opposition to the will of God. This woman is bloodthirsty. She desires to kill the people of God, whether in old Israel, the covenant Jews, or in the church of God. Saints, martyrs, all fall slain before her. The history of Roman religion from the Caesars to our own day is a history of blood. I don't need to document this fact at present. You can check out my book, Scarlet Threads. That can be a resource for those who want to investigate further. John is aghast. Look at verses 6 and 7. He can't believe it. Could it be that the reason for his horror is that this woman reminds him of someone or something that he knows well? Is it... Christianity without Christ that shocks him so? Or may it be a shock and horror to us? The angel offers to solve the mystery. After the following verses then, we ought to come away with a perfect understanding of who is the woman and who she is riding to power. May the Lord clear away the dullness of our vision so that this outcome truly results. Here's the clear statement, verse 18, before we begin probing into the mind of the Spirit about the beast that's coming up next. 
Let's find yet one more identification of the woman on him. She is, I'm just quoting, you can read it, she is the city reigning over the kings of the earth in John's day. She is Rome. I mean, Babylon is Rome. Could anything be clearer? Daniel saw it. Rome rules in a greater or lesser way, according to Daniel's prophecy, until the end of time. Has any world power since Rome ever dominated the earth? Do not one in every six persons to this very day on the planet claim some sort of allegiance to Rome? Is not the direction of Christendom beginning to go back toward that city? Is not European politics partially dependent on what happens there? May God awaken his people. But, having said all of that, I still reserve the right to look to the prophets for something else, something in addition. Think me not double-minded here. Babylon has worn many faces and may yet wear another one. More of this Old Testament connection in chapter 18 when we get to it. And remember, when Babylon finally falls, what is said? Babylon is fallen is fallen. Why are they stuttering there? Why do we say it twice? Babylon is fallen, is fallen. You can read it for yourself. Twice. Why? Is it because there are two Babylons that we need to keep an eye out for? Next time we'll talk about the beast from the sea. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, You may want to get the book at Amazon.com. I really want this message to get out. I hope that you will help me if you're listening, to help me get this message out to others who need to hear it or read it. These are times that could be, I know many generations have felt the same way, but I feel that way. I believe we're close, we're close, we're close. And knowing the book of Revelation will certainly bless your life and get you ready for things to come. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we'll talk again. Real soon. Bye-bye.